Hello, and welcome to the Teaching in Medicine podcast, where we explore effective teaching of the healthcare providers of tomorrow. This is a Meet the Educator episode, where we discuss one individual's journey and approach to medical education. I am your host, Dr. Kathleen Timmy. This is part two of my interview with Dr. Brian Good, Pediatric Clerkship Director at the University of Utah. Go back and listen to part one if you haven't already. So when you think about your role as clerkship director, what is a typical week or a typical month like for you? What kinds of activities are you involved in? What is your, what's your day-to-day like for that role? Yeah, the, um, the clerkship director, I think across the School of Medicine, there's some sort of variable in terms of for, for those that, that don't know. Um, I mean, I'm a physician and so I'm a, I'm a clinician and I, I, the bulk of my job is, a, is, a, is taking care of children in a hospitalized setting. I'm a hospitalist. And any time that, that, just like research, educational roles, you can get paid money to sort of buy down your clinical time a little bit so you can invest time. You don't have to spend time, all your time taking care of patients. There's time to devote to other things. That could be research, or in my case, it's creating this curriculum, rolling out the curriculum, administering the curriculum. And so my normal day really depends if I'm on service or if I'm not on service. Currently this week, I'm not on service, and which means that I come in in the morning and I have all day to do things that relate to the other parts, my non-clinical elements to my job. So today, for instance, I came in and I did. I prepped for this a little bit. And then the thing that I'm working on right now is uh, Sarah Lamb is working on having each of the departments create a mistreatment policy. So what we're going to do when we identify or students have concerns about mistreatment from anybody, from staff, from faculty, from other students, from residents. And so today I worked on that. Yeah, later in my day, I get to teach where the, the students have, it's the halfway point of the clerkship. So I have to, I'm going to, um, we do like another reorientation for the students just to answer questions. So I have about an hour or two with the students uh, this afternoon. And then I do evaluations all day. So to get student grades um, for the inpatient portion, we sit, I sit down with, I'm so thankful for the awesome uh, coordinators that I'm working with. Currently, I'm working with Ashley and Tiffany. And we are going to sit down with the residents and the attendings that have worked with the students and then move through the the grading rubric from the School of Medicine. And we're going to sit down and go through each of the students that are on the rotation now and go through and give them a, assign them a grade for their last three weeks of work. Had I been on service, I would probably have to like I, some all the, those things that I just described, most of them still happen. And so I try to layer in. I try to see patients in the mornings and then I spend my afternoons doing more med students focused things. What was that? Yeah, that's helpful. So so what would you say are some of the biggest challenges in your role as clerkship director? It sounds like being able to juggle your inpatient requirements and, and the clerkship responsibilities might be a challenge. Anything else that is kind of one of the challenges of the job? I, do, I am. I feel so thankful to have the job because it is it is kind of the highest um, job in the department that gets to work really closely with the med school. Any higher than that, you do a lot of things with the School of Medicine, and I don't get to work as much with the department, or I don't get to teach as much. So I just I adore the role that I have now because I do a lot of direct teaching, 
and I also have a lot of um, say over the curriculum. Like personally, I love the fact I love talking about like healthcare policy and economics and reform. Not that I'm good at it, but I like talking about it. And so we really integrated that into the curriculum. I think the challenges come about when. It's funny, a lot recently there's been a lot of talk in the news about how a lot of burnout is coming from when people are doing jobs that they feel doesn't line up with their moral compass and they're doing things that don't line up with that. And so there are certain things in the clerkship that are hard for me because I know we could do them better, but I'm not exactly sure how to do them better. I would love to have more longitudinal learning experiences to create um, a better feedback system and more continuity for students so that they can, just like the Glasgow team, be evaluated and grow with different attendings and residents. So when they get evaluated, it's a, it's a knowledgeable evaluation and knowledgeable mm-hmm. feedback. And so that's, that is hard to, what I feel right now, be a little bit stuck in this system. I was actually thinking about this too. I think uh, Andy Smith does amazing, innovative work and I love just talking with him and I'm a little jealous of his uh, CRNR. Yeah, CRNR. CRNR. That um, they run that course and then they've got the rest of the year to think about it, make it better. The clerkship, I get, I have two week block where at the end of the year where I can sort of, where I can alter it for the next year. And it's hard for me to have these big innovations that I'm going to roll out because if I roll it out in rotation one, I have to be really conscientious that I'm doing fairly similar things in rotation eight. And I, I don't know. So for me that that's, I see some problems that I think need some big changes and I'm not exactly sure in the framework how to make those changes happen. It's also exciting though that you can kind of click refresh every four weeks and kind of start new and if there's things that you want to try you could potentially try in the next rotation rather than waiting you know the next year for a whole course so yeah there's some some opportunities there. Most of that comes from student feedback honestly yeah that we pay attention and we'd like oh yeah we could do that better. And what's the greatest joy in your role as clerkship director? I really like getting to know the third years. I do understand that not everyone's interested in pediatrics, but I really appreciate when people try and they try to jump in uh, for their role and for the time. That part I love. For me, um, another joy is when people have learned or I see evidence on the wards that learning has happened and, and students are engaged. It doesn't have to be the learning that I like espouse, but learn something on the clerkship or learn something about themselves are improving and they feel proud to have done a night shift, have done certain amount of missions or or even feeling like just yesterday I talked to two students who out of nowhere are thinking about peds and I don't know if that's going to come up but they're just being able to be in a role where it's part of my job to talk to them about their future and help guide them into a future that they feel really good about I think is such a unique spot to be in I feel really lucky yeah, I'm sure you've inspired a lot of medical students along the way and certainly many have become residents here and elsewhere Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I think that is true um, so I'd like to talk about a very very unique program that you're involved in called EPAC. Um, I think that it's very intriguing that you are part of such a big multi-site educational 
initiative intervention. So could you tell us a little bit more about what EPAC is and how you got involved? Yeah, of course. I, I can't talk about EPAC without first talking about Dr. Jim Bale and Dr. Megan O'Connor, both of whom have been uh, Dr. Bale in the beginning um, and, and Megan now, Dr. O'Connor now. Their work has been amazing with the EPAC project. But there was a time when uh, Dr. Bale was starting to start thinking about retirement, and he had these two really big projects that he was working on. He was working on the IPASS project and the EPAC project. um, IPASS is a a communication tool that at the time we were using for for resident handoff. And the EPAC program, Education and Pediatrics Across the Continuum, was a project that the University of Utah really was fascinated about and jumped into from a very high level very early on in the process. So much so that the University of Utah Uh, University of Colorado, University of Minnesota, and University of California, San Francisco, UCSF, all wondered if we could advance students based on their competency and not based on time. In that, we were looking at, um, when you start thinking about competency, they, they made a leap to think about like the entrustable professional activities that they can watch students do and grow into throughout medical school. And there were meetings for maybe two years before I even got involved where Dr. Bale is residency director, the administration of the university, as well as Adam Stevenson were very involved. They go to the, it's a project that came from the AAMC and they brought um, these schools together and Maryland was very involved in the beginning too and so it was growing and a lot had happened and as Dr. Bale was thinking about um, retiring we didn't know how, I mean it's, a, it's an amazing um, innovative program that we really wanted to be involved with but we didn't know who was who was gonna who was gonna fill Dr. Bale's big shoes and um, so uh, thankfully with uh, Tiffany Glasgow and Bruce Herman and myself we we tread water slightly thankfully until Megan really did an amazing job to own it and take it over and take it into definitely new heights where it has been but the beauty of it is a lot of the things that I was talking, struggles I have with the clerkship, one of them I mentioned was longitudinal relationships between learners and faculty. By what we the program did is it accepted students near the end of their second year of medical school and gave them a residency spot. And what that did was on a, on a larger level, it created that same relationship that was, I thought, is apparent on the Glasgow team, where you have investment from the university. And in this case, by accepting this medical student as a resident, now all of a sudden, our department is really invested in their doing well, because now we want them to succeed. And I don't mean succeed from a USMLE or a grade standpoint, <laughs> but succeed in a patient care standpoint. And so that allowed a really like lessening that burden of am I going to get into a residency do I need to like crush the USMLEs maybe now all of a sudden they can focus on patient care focus on their histories and so it really it was a a really great model that way it also um, really involved students in the getting of feedback and the evaluation so that they were able to I don't know, solicit feedback a lot easier from people and actually treat that feedback as a growth opportunity and not some sort of, you're not related to a grade. Mm -hmm. So I'm really 
am pleased with the program. Currently on a national level, the, the national group still meets, but the, the finances that, or the grants that have initially established it have, have started to, to dwindle. And so now the next meeting is going to be the first meeting that's not at the AAMC in Washington, D.C. It's going to be here in Utah. And if you, those schools that I mentioned fairly quickly, if you recognize, they're all fairly out west. Right. And so we would all go out east for this meeting. <laughs> and so now with this transition, we're going to try to own it a little more. Um, and we're going to have the meeting here, which would be great. And our our students who have turned into residents, who have turned into fellows, are really doing an amazing job. I did, I'm going to be embarrassed. I can't say exactly how many classes we have, but we've certainly... I think just this January we had another brand new, maybe the fifth group of, um, I'm sorry, Megan, that I don't know that off the top of my head, the, um, <laughs> but something, and and they are doing a really wonderful job, and they're and they're most of them have been able to cut off about six months of off of their med school education. And it's fascinating because everyone sees it differently. I mean, it's, it definitely came as an education model, so I'm most excited about the competency-based education, the evaluation, and the feedback part. But a lot of people can see it. Uh, Dr. Clark, really interestingly, he thought of it as a way to, can we somehow spread it out and increase ability to recruit people from more, more rural areas mm. and, and use it as, a, as sort of a recruiting tool to if they know where they want to go and they know what they want to practice and where they want to get back to, is there some way we can expedite their, their education process and get them back into their home places and I don't know it's a, it's a neat model yeah it's a very neat model I worked with one of the EPAC students this week in clinic and I was just so impressed by her maturity and her clinical skills and knowing that you know she had sort of fast-tracked through medical school it, it didn't seem that there was anything missing it kind of allows you to hone in on what you're most interested in along the appropriate timeline for that individual so yeah. very interesting so during residency training, do they also have the option to kind of truncate the traditional three years if they're meeting competencies a little bit more quickly? Yeah. Of Interestingly, with those four schools I mentioned, uh, in the end, only two of the schools were able to actually change the time of med school, whereas there were some local regulations um, in terms of the physician degree, which didn't allow truncating of the medical education, but they still kept data and they said, yeah, these students would have been ready. And so in only one of the four, which was Utah, thanks to Dr. Herman, um, they decided they were the only one who actually tried to, to continue this model through residency and actually truncate the model. And we did have some residents who went into fellowship six months early. Um, so there was, we I guess, that one person was able to shave a year off their training, their combined med school and residency training. And it's been equally successful because we do we do create a competency committee for each individual. So they're followed really closely. Their evaluations are read really closely and they can we can see how their how their performance is improving and if they are ready. And it is under um, both with the CC and Dr. Herman's well, not jurisdiction, but decision on whether or not they can sit the boards early. And so the MBME and the match um, are all invested in that, and they've, they've given the okay for that. 
So it has happened and it's worked. It's pretty good. Yeah, it's such a fascinating process. Before we wrap up, I did want to talk about your experience in global health. I know that's a a big part of who you are and your background. And I want to talk specifically about what teaching has looked like in those global sites. That's neat. I I really did. I was so focused. At that time when I was in residency, I was pretty selfishly focused on travel in the sense of I wanted to see a different part of the world. I had learned in Ireland which, um, I don't know, compared to some of our academic centers here, feels, not it's not rural, certainly, but it's just, it's different. And I wanted to, I really enjoyed rural areas, and I thought I would enjoy rural medicine quite a bit, and so I wanted to do rural medicine abroad. I thought that would be neat. And it just happens when I did finally through a roundabout way bump into a clinic in a very rural setting in Guatemala, I was more focused on the medicine and my ability to practice. But the, the, with the f- subsequent visits, I recognized that the model they were using was so awesome that I became so much more focused on the educational model and not the medical care as much in the sense of this nonprofit is very focused on teaching healthcare promoters or community health workers. Uh, to teaching them to become their village's care provider. And the village chooses a an individual and they join our uh, like our cohort of students that we might have, and there's a fairly rigorous three-year curriculum that they go through. They come visit us for a week, and then they go back to their communities for maybe about a month, a month and a half before returning to our, our teaching center for another week of classes. And in the end, they become a fairly decent healthcare provider for their community. And the more time they devote to it, the better they get. They can keep coming back. We do have sort of like CME-like courses okay. for them to... Um, um, for each, and it's a it's a neat model in the sense of for each new medicine that we teach or each new disease we teach, we provide the medicine for. For instance, the first course is what it means to be a promoter, and we use um, where there is no doctor, which is a book by David Verner, an older book, but it's really been it has some really nice new additions, and it's written in a wonderfully uh, readable. Um, level of vocabulary both in English and in Spanish it's been translated in a lot of different languages but we talk about how to use the book we talk about how to use a table of contents how to alphabetize because a lot of people don't haven't used books before and aren't used to having a book as a resource and um, and then we give them a thermometer we talk about fevers and what a fever is and what it could mean and then we give some Tylenol and then they go back to their they go back for a month and then they come back and we start talking about what were the types of fevers they saw when did they use it how'd it go and then and then the the second course thinking about things that really hurt people is a respiratory illness course and so we start talking about pneumonia and then in there we start talking about penicillin and so we do mostly the oral penicillin first because injections are a whole nother level but it's a different skill set that they will get and because we practice in these very rural areas we're not in any competition these people live very far away from healthcare or pharmacies so there's really no competition no one gets too upset that we're provi- we're having like really smart people with medicines in these small communities and we really have a wonderful that currently there are two big we've we've worked in a lot of areas but there are two most active ones right now are Guatemala and Colombia and Guatemala that team's been working there almost 30 years and so they are 
the people who do most of the teaching are all people who have who are live there and they're from there and so they have gotten they've decided not to practice in the community but they've come centrally to actually help us learn how to teach and then teach or learn how to administer learn how to deal with a pharmacy Certain people like dentistry, so they're getting good at dental skills. Or then, then there's a midwife arm of the curriculum, too, and so a lot of people do that. So it's fascinating to me that I went with one thing, and I really learned this, this amazing model for a very low cost. You can send a physician for six months for fairly cheap, and I do a lot of teaching. But the other element that I do is I work alongside the promoters in clinic to make sure that the things that we're teaching are being reinforced, and there I can actually see the, the their performance, and I can change the curriculum based on what I'm seeing, or you know, add a new CME course or something. And uh, so that's that model, but it's a good one. I, I think that's how you create a lasting impact is through education with global health efforts, because your impact is continuing today, even though your time and, and your physical being, you know, you're up here, but I'm sure you've created programs that lasted even in the time that you're not there. So yeah, and this, very I mean, that's been a lot of work from a lot of different people to create that. I certainly didn't come up with that, but it's a really, I don't know, I agree with you, a very sustainable model mm-hmm. that actually works and it helps people out quite a bit. So yeah. I'm proud of it. And it's completely similar to working with med students and residents here. Sure. So even though the diseases are a little different, um, the language is different, the model's pretty similar of just empowering learners to be their best, you know, and people rising to that occasion. Yeah, and working with learners who have kind of limited training and expertise in medicine and kind of starting at that level. Mm-hmm. Well, I could talk to you all day about that experience and might have to have you back at some point to talk about education and global health. Um, but I wanted to wrap up with one last question for you. So what teaching pearl or piece of advice would you like to leave us with today? I really didn't recognize how feasible a career in medical education was. And I think that I'm so thankful to to have followed things that I was interested in, followed projects to, to completion. I think that's a key, is making sure you finish, you try to finish what you start as much as possible. And um, opening your eyes, collaborating with people can really make the career really worthwhile. And I don't know that I think just like medical care provides happiness in getting people healthier, helping people be their best selves, medical education is really similar in the sense of it does provide that direct feedback when people do learn and it fosters this passion to keep doing, to keep excelling, to keep improving. So I think it really is. It's, it's a feasible career and just follow your passion. I think you can make it happen. Great. Well, Dr. Good, I've enjoyed our conversation and I really appreciate you taking the time to be here today. So thank you for coming. Thanks for having me. That was a treat. Thank you for listening to the Teaching in Medicine podcast. I hope that everyone is staying healthy and safe during this difficult time. I am continuously humbled by the response of healthcare professionals everywhere. I am also impressed by the swift response of medical educators as well, who have had to move curricula online and create alternative opportunities for learners all while trying to take care of their own patients and their own families. I'd recorded the first six episodes before this pandemic and will not bring guests into the studio until it is safe to do so. During the interim, I will create shorter episodes by myself. And as always, I would love to hear your thoughts and ideas at teachingandmedicinepodcast at gmail.com. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.